0: Security Excellence Through Education, Corporate Security University. gentlemen boys and girls of all ages we're here excited with corporate security university it is myself carlos francisco and scott walker and this is corporate security university security excellence through education now we got listen we got one of the coolest guys in the world let me tell you he's like a savant of uh, of of don't laugh tyler it's true uh, of education and everything else. And this is going to be a real cool one because we talked about Katrina and how Katrina was going to change the industry, and uh, it, and it has. But what would have been like if security was the main point at the time when, when you have law enforcement, what the government did that could have probably slowed it down. This is going to be a huge educational piece. I'll let Scott talk more about it. But we got Tyler Schmoker with us. man. I love your name, dude. Every single day. From I love his on. hair.
1: I well, love his hair.
0: It, me me too. Though no, hey, so, so ponytail. Glor- it is glorious, Scott. It is glorious. But uh this is really going to be exciting. It's going to be a great uh great conversation. Hopefully we'll be able to keep this uh, down to the time that we usually do, but it's going to be a good one. Scott,
1: what yeah. else are we talking about, brother? Well, th- what's interesting here is a lot of uh, we have a whole generation of people that maybe are not aware of what happened in 20, 2005 in uh, the state of beautiful Louisiana, <laughs> New Orleans, um, the uh, the Katrina hurricane. And I was on the West Coast when this happened. I was a federal agent working in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. So I didn't know anything about what a hurricane is. Obviously, I know what earthquakes are, but sure didn't know what hurricane was. And uh, so Tyler and I were just at ASIS's premiere. Uh, you know, annual conference, GSX 2023. And we were talking about this and I was like, wait a second, you were Katrina? And he's like, yeah, what, you were Katrina? I was like, Katrina. And we did this whole like, you know, pointed at each other thing. Like, what did you do? What did you do? Um, and then we started talking about this and we're like, this might be interesting for a podcast. Just the experiences that we had, the things that we saw, both both of us were working for the government at the time, but there was a private security context here and we, we should talk about that we should talk mm-hmm. about emergency management uh, because one thing's for sure we are seeing a significant uptick I mean today as we are recording this on September 29th the uh, much of New York City is underwater. So um, the, the rapid rising of, of sea level and um, disasters are becoming more commonplace. Flooding is, is um, one of the most predictable things uh, and the most destructive things in, in Mother Nature. And so how do we as security professionals in our international corporations, how do we keep our companies, our people, our products, our supply chain secure and safe? when these things will occur. Uh, there's probably not a lot that we can do to minimize these situations, but there's things that Tyler and I saw while we were there uh, at, during Katrina that I think uh, have influenced a little bit. Um, at least it has for me, Tyler, I won't speak for you, but I'll let you speak for yourself. Definitely influenced the way I look at responding as a as a corporate security professional to a natural disaster. Yeah. So Tyler, why don't you go ahead? Why don't we just start with you? I don't know if you if you feel comfortable enough giving a background of kind of who you are, where you came from, and, yeah. and those kinds of things. Um, but feel free to to jump in. How'd you get to this beautiful state of Louisiana and and Nola? Tell us about
2: Nola. Well, so. Essentially, my career in the military started five days after high school, ran off, joined the army, left the family farm. And it it really was that simple. Right. And did an active duty tour and then transitioned in the National Guard to start going to school and, and earning a degree. But I so I. I was in a D2 school down south at the time, so I was in the National Guard there, got the tuition benefits off of that, which I think kind of ties into what you guys are working on, too. So I was part of a quick reaction force for the state of Louisiana, and um, interestingly enough, relative to Katrina, on this quick reaction force that was on, we'd done a similar operation the year before for IVAN. Right. Where we went, oh, yeah. occupied the Superdome, basically went through the drills of, you know, how we would take people in. And I think for that shelter of last resort, maybe a couple hundred people came in there. Right. And then yeah. fast, you know, packed up after three days, nothing really happened. A non-event went home. And then a year later, my government issued beeper went off. Uh, three hours later, we're rolling trucks out of the armory. We got all the boys and girls together and, and kitted out, and ready to go and so we actually arrived in new orleans pre-landfall of katrina so we were about 24 hours before pre-landfall so we got there and we started doing rsoi or reception reception integration something right so basically taking people in for the shelter of last resort and this time around there's more people coming in and then obviously the whole world saw what unfolded as far as like the complexity of 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 challenges and really scott you know where i was I've been thinking about this a lot since GSX this year because, you know, we sat down at that dinner and we were talking about polycrisis that night. Yeah. And um, for folks who don't know, it's kind of a concept that what is it? The I can't remember the organization that's, that, that coined the term polycrisis, but essentially. The Cast- World Economic Forum. So there you go, world economic forum. So basically, cascading events. It's like it's like you have one challenge, and you've done the war gaming, you've done the table topping, you've done the rehearsals for this thing, whether it's a you know mass shooter or or whether it's a environmental or or power outage or whatever. But it's like, what do you do when there are kind of cascading events happening, and how do you deal with that as a leader, whether it's a military leader, a paramilitary leader? or a security leader. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Mm. I think that really New Orleans post Katrina was kind of the template for Mm. the potential of private security being deployed for inherently governmental activities. One, Mm you know, based on the you know breaking previous previous precedents with the level of emergency it was and then also having that private military pmc component deployed in a domestic security and defense capacity um the way in ways that it hadn't been done before so you know when we were talking about polycrisis before i started kind of doing my own personal inventory it's like well to what extent do i really understand what polycrisis is so i think about new orleans and I, you know as a 25 year old guy at the time and i had you know 13 other guys with me and you know we're in new orleans and we're at the superdome trying to figure stuff out and operate and keep people safe bring people in and then eventually get people out of what was kind of a cruddy situation just you know people overcome by events and all the you know all of the challenges that come along with that so for me new orleans more so than the war in iraq more than afghanistan more than other deployments i've done like new orleans was kind of the template of how we plan for polycrisis and or don't plan for poly crisis, right? Yeah. now considering that new orleans is a major ish american city no offense but it's not a global city it's not like dallas texas or it's not like new york or la but i mean it's a major american city but you know we're the richest nation in the world and i mean there was a period of time we were struggling to figure out how to respond just to one city because you right. had that that polycrisis of events where, OK, we've got the storm that comes and we have the damage and impacts that comes along with that. There's definitely socioeconomics that comes along with that. You had poor people that don't necessarily have the means to evacuate. And even if they could get out of the city one, they don't have a car, maybe they get a ride, they can't afford a hotel, all of these different things that kind of compound. And then on top of that, you've got flooding, right? So you have mobility challenges. And then you have telecom goes down and, and, you know, Sergeant yeah, Smoker with this flip phone can't reach his guys, but we're line of sight only and you're not able to get, you're not able to get your eye guys because you're line of sight you have skyscrapers and they don't work very well with line of sight and then just sustainment operations after that. And then also just dealing with like the criminality component versus the humanitarian aspect and, and the rules of engagement and, you know how the media was influencing things, and how that could affect rules of engagement or public perception, and how different entities were operating. And then just because the signals and comms was so weak, it was hard for inter it was hard for interagency coordination. I mean, you have federal agencies, you have state and local agencies there, you have private military contractors, you have private security companies, plus you have different military units under a non unified command trying to do coordination. And and not only that, but You know, once they federalized the response, and I was literally sitting on the top deck of the Superdome when they federalized it and the birds started coming in and dropping supplies and 82nd Airborne come in and Marines were coming in, started to kind of do some reconstitution and backup on the efforts we had. I I heard somewhere and I, I can't. I'd have to verify it, but at one point they said in the airspace over New Orleans there were there were more rotor wing aircraft in the air than I, Afghanistan and Iraq combined. And I mean, Correct. it was it was a wild experience. Even to this day, when I look at time in other disasters and then also Afghanistan and Iraq, like uh, Katrina's just wild, man. It, it was a different beast. I just too much, Tyler. You're incredible, incredible. Look. too many ideas i think we're going to be
0: doing this for a lot longer than than we probably should today but here it is here's a couple things that you mentioned i thought it was really really interesting to me you know, back in 2010, the World Bank literally stated that the benefits and costs of government spending are spread unevenly, providing an incentive yeah. for groups to form and influence spending and policies in their favor. So, what you, one of the things about Katrina that a lot of people don't know that are most of the people that were affected, almost like 100%, 98% of the people that are affected, were literally mid to lower income folks, mostly lower income, right? Mm-hmm. These see the World Bank already knew this kind of stuff. That's the beauty about this thing that was written in 2010. Uh, by the way, you can look at it at page 110. I'm going to throw this out every okay. once in a while. So if you look at the World Bank uh, uh, book, uh, two, uh, page 110, and they already knew that the lower income areas that were closest to the levy issues that they had over there, they were not going to be looked out for. Uh, the rich folks are going to be looked down for, everybody that had those big mansions, they're going to be looked down for, and everybody else was like after that. The second thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting, which is something else about HSPD, everything from 20, uh, uh, from 18 to 22, which was the, 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 basically the, the federal, the government saying, hey, man, this is how you should have known that you could have used us. What happened is that locally, none of them, I think, knew from the get-go. They weren't educated enough to know that. Look, you can use PPD8, which is which is the the, the, the president's mandate, the presidential director that says, yeah. "Hey, give me a call, brother. Give me a call. Let me help you out, right?" And then it goes to the HSPDs, which the HSPDs is like twenty of them that that the Homeland Security stuff that talks about the approaches on how we can help. I just don't think the people in Thailand, and you mentioned this, like once we federalized everything, which the HSPDs or the PPD, PP, uh, PPD eight. Right. I just didn't think they knew how to use it. And most importantly, once they did, or somebody told them, gave them a hint, it was like how to manage it. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that was a big issue right from the get go. And I think you got to see it right from the ground up, man. Um, I don't know, Scott, I I, 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 hate
1: to talk about politics and I won't, but, I get having been with the principal federal official who or the admiral who became the principal federal official during his much of his time in the relief efforts, having seen and heard uh, from him and watching him interact with state government and city government, the the city of New Orleans uh, mayor and the state governor. um, I hate to say this, but it, it appeared that there was resistance or friction from the Democrats wanting to work with a Republican administration. That was my experience. And I think, gosh, I hope I'm wrong. I really do, because that's that does not fare well in future responses. But that was that's what I saw um, people saying that we don't want help from the U.S. government, from federal FEMA. And then, to, to Tyler's point, when it became a a, a federalized organ and and much more organized. Now, this is the beauty of the National Guard and the Coast Guard. They didn't need um, authorization from anybody to come in. Uh, right. They The Coast Guard just started flying and rescuing. Mm-hmm. Um, that They didn't even have to wait for the, the commandant of the Coast Guard to say, yeah, you guys will go. Mm-hmm. They just went, um, just like any other search and rescue call. So... Um, for them, it was uh, it was quickly overwhelming, though. So if you think about public safety, um, that's and, and, and if they if anybody's heard us talk before, we always do talk about the dwindling numbers of public safety and the, the inability of government to fully uh, it, uh, be able to respond to these these much, much broader disasters. And mm-hmm. it's not it, it would be one thing if we were just talking about the Ninth Ward. Uh, and that's, that's where a lot of the uh, folks who are underprivileged and, and the, to your point, Tyler, they could not escape. Um, when I got there, the buses were underwater that they were supposed to leave in. Um, and there weren't enough buses, by the way, anyways, uh, but they could have gotten probably hundreds, if not thousands of more people out. Um, but the buses were underwater because of inaction from local government. Mm-hmm. Um And so, and that's something that I I saw personally with my own eyes, the, so the inability to, to respond to uh, just a tactical disaster, you know, in just the New Orleans proper, which by the way, yeah, sure. It hit New Orleans hard, real hard, right? Ninth Ward was decimated. Anybody talk about Mississippi? Right. Mississippi was flattened, by the way. Mm -hmm. They weren't complaining. I don't know why, but their response, their resilience, either as people, as an organization, their public safety, their National Guard, I don't know. But they responded quite significantly. Um, And my team members who worked on that side of the border had a completely different mission because they weren't needed. We were looking at people who are shooting at the rescue helicopters. That's right. I said the people being rescued were shooting at firefighters and Coast Guard rescuers. Um, how do you how do you handle that? Right. Uh, I didn't hear the same thing in Mississippi, so I don't have an answer. I do know there was a ton of criminality in mm-hmm. New Orleans. Um, that uh, Nola, New Orleans PD. Could not handle. The first time I got in to speak to our representative, um, and we were doing threat assessments so that the relief effort could happen. It's probably very similar to what you were doing, Tyler, on the security side. But our um, we uh, we 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 brought in a, a a few cases of adult beverages to pay bills. Go. Um, that's how the world goes around. Sorry if that's new for anybody that hears that. Um, but we paid for the information that we received and the help that we received from New Orleans. That was the first cold beer that they had gotten in, in weeks or a week. We, we were there pretty quickly. Um, but our our New Orleans uh, SWAT captain, who was our representative to, to help our team, um, was wearing a T-shirt that said police on it because he had lost everything. In his house, and he had his gun tucked in his waistband. He couldn't leave the the city; can't leave it. Um, The city uh, uh, would have been uh, completely abandoned by law enforcement, but those guys stayed. And they fought through it, and they and they deserve um, you know a lot more recognition than what they got from the government thereafter, or, or the the press thereafter was very critical. But mm-hmm. I mean, t- Tyler, you probably saw. Let's just talk about the security elements on the ground um, from your vantage. Uh, did you what, what what were the security concerns? Um, so people can understand that um, when you're driving into a disaster zone. Uh, you 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 don't just drive like I'm on the freeway and I'm you know driving miss Daisy you, that's not the same thing um, because there are power lines that are down across most of the streets. Uh, there's no gas station in town, so you better bring extra gas. I mean, what was your experience with uh, with those kinds of things logistically and security wise?
2: Well, I would say really even when the water was still high, there was the added complexity of there was near zero mobility, right right. Like, you had a period of time when the water was at its highest, like even like butted up right up to the Superdome that, you know, high Ford trucks couldn't get in and out. And then on top of that, you have towers that are overloaded. So we had our cool early 2000s flip phones. No one could make a call and you keep trying and keep oh trying God. and trying. So you could, So you could call mom and let her know, look, yeah. I'm still alive. Don't believe the news. I'll let you know if something changes. Right. So, you know, there's that. But you're right. A lot of the people who were part of the early response in particular was first responders that lived in the city or nope. lived in the state because and then also like National Guard people who lived in the city or lived elsewhere in the state. And you've mentioned it before, Scott, how, you know, National Guard doesn't fall under the same posse comitatus type of laws. Right. But I think there's probably an element to even the lack of unified command until the effort got federalized where there was some resistance just around like posse Comitatus, I think. And just the fact that national pure national guard responses rarely reach the level where they require a, a high echelon unified response or unified military command. So I think it's just one of those situations where, it got too big for the folks in charge locally, and they really needed that component between, you know, the likes of FEMA and and Homeland Security and and DoD and all these other agencies that came in. But even then, when you have Unified Command, you don't have basic infrastructure. It's like, well, we need to move people out that way. Well, how the hell do we get there, right? right? And then, well, once we're out there, how do we communicate and let them know that we're reaching waypoints and stuff like that? Because can't use line of sight on your radio comms because this you know, tall buildings and you can't use cell phones because the networks are overloaded. So you have all these different things. And then, you know, as the effort, as the response started to mature, it went from New Orleans police who I think their, their force was degraded to about half with people splitting. Right. That's right. And then you have Louisiana national guard, small elements at first, like the initial QRF was like two companies right at the Superdome. Right. So it was my company Maybe a hundred people, and then another company that came in. Right
1: there, there were cities that were surrounding, and other law enforcement agencies like the uh, the toll. What's that bridge that goes across across Le- Ponte Train? They hey, have the- their own patrol. Oh, Ponte you know. Train Causeway, yeah, yeah, the Causeway Police that were blocking off access into New Orleans. And um, some said that we're blocking access into their own towns from people in New Orleans that actually needed help. <laughs> right. um, I, I don't know. I did, I had the brass pass, so I got to go wherever I wanted to, but um, some of the security things that I initially saw and, and which is funny or is interesting, I think, because I never saw a security guard the whole time I was there. I only saw national guard Um And Mm -hmm. law enforcement, I'll just say uniform law enforcement. Um, But when you talk about resources, I think, or or, you know, being able to move and communicate, um, I really feel for the private sector. Uh, We we've all seen the videos of people wandering around in Home Depot, Lowe's, um, Walmart, in in New Orleans taking things off the shelves mm-hmm. and at the time nobody understood what was going on but Walmart and I don't mean to speak for Walmart but I mean and Carlos keep me uh, tell me if I'm off base here Walmart offers this as a service they they literally unlock their doors during a disaster and are like the food's going to go bad take it take what mm-hmm. you need um right. I understand, and tell me correct me if I'm wrong that's yeah, my no. understanding
0: Yeah, and it's a relationship with uh, with uh, the local pd or whoever it is that's coming there it's either the military a lot of them are national guard people that are actually doing security because ultimately what they want is to make sure that their property itself is not damaged uh the food that is going to go damaged that is a loss to them right on the asset protection side on loss prevention a spillage uh shrink percentage so yeah, they're like, "Wow, are we going to do this? It's going to be a loss anyways coming up. And the beauty about this disasters, by the way, and many companies did this, gentlemen, uh, again, going back to a little bit on the education side, is that they literally wiped out their entire inventory as a loss. Uh, insurance companies have to pay a whole bunch, oh, yeah. even when the loss didn't happen. Yeah, that's uh, right. By the way. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, a disaster is a good opportunity for for those things. But uh, I think what y'all are saying is just amazing. I'm, I'm loving hearing a little bit of the history from from you, two that were down on the ground. You know, mine is really an educational base. Uh, I was hanging out in Orlando, Florida, where we've had plenty of our hurricanes.
1: Which, yeah, you guys get hit all the time, too.
0: Well, yeah, we, I mean, we get hit all the time. But we didn't have a levy that a lot of government money went into it in 1927. Uh, yeah. We could talk about a bunch of different things here a little bit later on. But 1927, a bunch of money went to it. They did absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> and that's why the levy uh, broke the way it did. But you're right. It's all the way up, up and down the Mississippi, by the way. It was not just uh, NOLA, New Orleans. So New Orleans. you guys continue on. I'm, I'm loving what you guys so, are saying. I'll just throw in these things every once in a while. Th-
1: no, that's good. The th- where I first, My first experience with security is we were in downtown NOLA, New Orleans, and uh, I think we were in the French Quarter, and I saw um, – something that I'll just describe to you and then I'll tell you what it was. But I saw something that I had only seen on the news in Iraq and Afghanistan, which was a gun truck. And this is the the white Toyota Tacoma trucks, you know, with the, the guy standing in the back with a machine gun or uh, the S
2: es- or the Escalades in some the, cases <laughs>
1: we, we did. I didn't see any Escalades initially, but everybody wanted, I had an Escalade, <laughs> which was the only thing that I could rent by the way in Houston, I rented the last four wheel drive vehicle, by the way, I'd never got a flat tire and had no mechanical issues with it, drove it for months. Um, by the way so uh i i get to i get into the downtown area into the the french quarter and we see these these guys rolling around in trucks and we're like who the heck is that because up until that time it always been national guard police and coast guard and uh, so we were like and by the way no uniforms wearing like Cool guy t-shirts and oak leaves ah, ah. and uh and 5'11 uh, pants. Everybody had 5'11s, tan 5'11 pants. I'm embarrassed yeah. to say that I had I had too many pairs. Yeah. So, so we we see these dudes rolling around and they're they're what uh you would call camo dudes or uh you know c- combat action guys. And uh so uh what turned out to be was Blackwater before and other,
2: and others too. And others, course. yeah. Beat yeah. Up so, Pri- Uh, uh, predominantly for sure.
1: Which is interesting, right? Because you think like, okay, how did, how are they getting, they had, they didn't have crew serve weapons, but they had, they did have military style rifles and pistols for sure. But what a lot of people don't realize is that besides securing critical infrastructure, you know, you do have to secure your energy and communications and water and food and uh, supply lines. I mean, I I'd like to think that that's probably very similar to what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, once, you know, we, we kind of the U S government took over, but so they brought it, they had to bring in military contractors, uh, Mm -hmm. essentially to, to do these things where I also had the most experience with them and, and they all gave me lapel pins and I have one over here from Blackwater. Um, and we had, we worked with a bunch of former, uh, seals and team guys and, uh, but I was telling this story before we started recording. We had um, an emergency operations center that was running the initial disaster management, and that was out of uh, uh, Baton Rouge, which is the state capital. And that was is only for emergencies. So it couldn't continue to do the relief efforts. So the fema the u.s government actually purchased um just kind of uh, maybe a mile or so away from the emergency operations center they purchased what was an old sears department store and they they built out a whole command center in there for fema relief and that was where the principal federal official admiral thad allen was and so we were part of his protection detail and so we would take him in and out of there and he had a kind of we have our own entrance and exit um, that was gated and guarded, and uh, we had our own helicopter pad because uh, you'd fly most places because it was really hard to get around. Um, and the folks who were part of our protecting our little compound or, that we called a fob, um, and for various reasons, those guys were Blackwater, and mm-hmm. um, so we I got to talking to them, and and it's really interesting because I was like, so how do you guys? Come here and like become, you know, you're a security guard, but you're working for FEMA. You don't have any authority. Do you have a state license or how does that work? And that what they told me, and I don't know if this is still true today and how they do things, but they basically got the whatever certifying body is for the state of Louisiana to to kind of give them a pass. Like mm-hmm. this is this is an emergency. These guys don't need to be licensed security guards. They work for FEMA, mm-hmm. uh, paid for by F- by FEMA, and uh, by the way, they can carry guns. And mm-hmm. you know, I I don't know how how the, the liability works. I'm sure Blackwater had, had plenty of insurance and things like that. Um, although I've heard Eric Prince tell some horrifying short stories about being self-insured on some operations. I don't know if that was the case there, but. <laughs> That, I thought it was really interesting because now we think about this year's 2023 and, and nearly 20 years later, right? In a couple of years, it'll be 20 years uh, since uh, Katrina, the, Katrina occurred. And by the way, m- much of the Ninth Ward is not repaired nearly 20 years later. By the way, Carlos, to your point earlier. So from a security standpoint, um, priority is going to um, be different. And I because I wasn't in security at that time, I, I can only imagine what it would be like um, to have so much devastation going on if you had people in that area or if you had something, some commodity or some asset that you needed to secure. And can you imagine the phone calls that are, were going out to that at that time, the allied Burtons of the world or the maybe it was his Barton back then. But, you know, you're, you're calling G4S and you're calling Whack and mm-hmm. Hunt. And you're calling all the bigs. Hey, can you get me guys? Can you get me guys? I need I need security. Um, I have done that not in the United States. I did that in China. We blew a building up. Our building got blown up in China. We had to call Securitas and send them in um, and everything worked out. But that's a funny story, by the way. Uh, Maybe if we get time. But, you know, I want I want corporate security folks to be thinking about this, how when you have a a disaster and the disaster does not have to be an international or a, a regional disaster like a hurricane. It can be an active shooter. Right. It can be a fire. You know, mm-hmm. that, that it could be a tornado, um, mm-hmm. right? And we've we've talked to our security vendor partners about things like that and how they've responded, and, and they've really kind of pulled us out of the fire many times. But I do want to – I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are. How, how do you prepare for these kinds of things? I mean, I have my own way. We, we all know disasters are unpredictable or, and predictable, depending on what side of the country you're on. You know, an earthquake is a bit unpredictable, but you can predict that it's going to be a nightmare sure for security I, I, From my
0: from my point of view real quick as i'll just jump in is that um i mean unpredictable as it is we all know that natural occurring disasters are really the bigger thing in our industry that we need to worry about i personally believe that until today we don't do that look Every single course that I've ever gone through or every single sexy thing that has ever come out that has said, well, you should educate your people in this has always been like bomb threats. Some person with a gun or an armed something, right? Um, it's never like the focus is, you know, BB from Florida, hurricanes, what are do you doing? Hurricanes happen. What do you do when you have massive floods? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, especially if you're up and down in Mississippi. Like, I'm going to bring back to Katrina real quick. Up and down the Mississippi, shit, happened in Mississippi, should it happen in 1927? happened in 1947, right? Literally, it happened again in 2005 with the with the levee break. But all the way in between, it has flooded in a small amount in, throughout cities in Mississippi, not totally because of the 2005 Katrina hurricane. So it happened so many times where, by the way, $100 billion of damage, Over 1,600 people dead. Mm Yeah. Right. And nobody took that as like, all right. Well, every time here in the security industry, when I'm, I'm going to figure out what the natural, the big natural disaster is within my area, and I'm going to make sure that's one of the top things that I educate my folks on. We still don't do that. It's still like active shooter, where the active shooter is like 0.50112, whatever the percentage may be, that it may happen within your town. I'm going to leave it there, but to bring it back to Katrina, we don't focus on, from what you're saying, Scott, the reason why we don't do it is because we don't focus on things that are really true, that really matter, and the odds of happening are really higher.
1: And, and I think we were like, well, you know, the government will come save us. And this is, this is my mantra, right? You guys both heard what? me say this. They're, they're just not coming. I'm
0: sorry. Well, thank God. By, by the way, thank God for September 11th. I think after September 11th, because right. a lot of things that occurred in September 11th really changed, um, you know, how we were going to approach this entire world that we're in. Uh, the Stafford Act was like totally the opposite of anything else that the, the president put in with the H.S.P.D. five, which came right after September 11th. It was like, OK, this is how we're going to do it. But the Stafford Act that we used forever, even the government was confused. It's like, what do we do? Right. Because nobody knew. Uh, so forget about the what I said earlier, even about the local government didn't understand what was no. going on in the federal on the federal side. Well, the feds didn't really know. Should, should we go with the Stafford <laughs> Act or, or what? Like, how do we. So good points here, man. I'm loving what you guys are saying. Please continue. I'm getting an education. Go like ahead, Tyler.
2: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned it, Scott, that you never saw a uniformed, like traditional security officer the whole time that you were down there. And I was thinking back about what you said. I'm like, I don't think that I did either, but you know similarly to you i saw private military contractors coming you saw the beat up guy guys rolling then you saw different federal agencies with the with the stretch patch or the stretch 511s that you wouldn't be caught dead in anymore and and then you had military folks right <laughs> he
0: still wears it he still wears it i, I do don't not, hear
1: it they are, i do oh. still have them though you, you, you
2: have the expanding waist. Oh, boy. <laughs> the hammer pocket. Like, what yeah, ex- exactly? That? Exactly. <laughs> but so it was a really interesting time because you think about probably like even corporates that were down there it's like okay they have a facility well i'll just call my local g4s or securitas or allied or universal or, or whoever and like i liken it to so i was a managing director for g4s up here in minneapolis when we had the riots okay and literally me and my business development guy like when it started cracking like we're getting a call every few seconds. And right away, you know, my my business development guy is like, oh, we could sell so much business. Like, we don't have enough people. It's like basically we're not taking on any new business. And then you're basically the best you can triaging and supporting what assets you have available to support existing customers. So for people out there who think, well, I'll just give the local security company a call and they like money and they'll get me a guard. When that stuff starts happening, at least initially, there's not a lot of people, one. Two, if the governor of the state is so kind to grant some sort of reciprocity and allow people to come in um, without an active state license in states that have the licensure, like Minnesota does – and didn't honor reciprocity, right? So we we had that challenge the whole time where we could never bring people in. Of course, there's people coming in saying, "Well, it's it's a natural or it's a it's a state emergency, so we can do it." It's not the same thing because I was on the phone with the licensing board every day, and they said this is not reciprocity. And It's like, well, I've got a fifty million dollar operation here. I'm not going to risk losing my business license by having an un- unbonded, untrained person in. So, in the case of New Orleans, I think. I don't know what their state licensing requirement is. It's probably not quite as stringent and or in the Gulf states in particular, it right. seems like they're a little bit more accommodating when it comes to granting reciprocity where you can start to bring folks in. So I suspect that you know potentially Blackwater had some sort of like an operating license out of Moyoc or, or whatever and brought people in as a lot of other you know companies did. And interestingly enough, that was kind of my first experience with like private military contractors as well. And it was something that was pretty formative to me. So kind of after the initial Superdome evac operation was over, and we ended up pushing out into the city for sustainment operations. My team and I, we got set up with a billet um, out one of the suburbs on uh, basically a hospital. It, you know, it was probably 10, 15 floors or something like that. So it dominated the landscape. So we were running operations like the PBS four, the old starlight scopes. But we're looking for activity. And we're on, we're on comms with cops, and we're calling them in right to location so they can make busts if you have people stealing rims or doing drugs and all these other things. So we were kind of command and control oversight, think UAVs before UAVs, or at least before yeah. we were using UAVs here. And so at this building, there were a couple guys, they weren't with Blackwater, but they were essentially PMCs who'd been hired direct um, by this hospital to Protect the work crews during the day. And then they were just there at night. So, you know, we saw them, became friends or whatever. And so that kind of always stuck with me. And then eventually I saw it more in Iraq. And then I said, well, this is something I want to try doing. I'm an <laughs> ex army guy, I'm a National Guard kid, and I've got big ideas. So eventually I went and did some of that stuff as well before I got into corporate security. But, you know, there are a lot of proponents out there talking about. You know the privatization of inherently mm-hmm. police and and inherently military activities for, you know, local internal defense as well as overseas and abroad. And Eric Prince being a huge proponent of it, he was on Sean sure. Ryan again recently. Yep, I that's haven't listened to, what I was talking about. Yeah. yeah, I haven't listened to the whole episode yet, but it's it's definitely in my playlist. But it's something that you know we have to become accustomed to, so that when we do need to leverage those assets. It's not the Wild West to where it's unregulated. We don't have unified command. We have no control over the rules of engagement, those types of things, to where we're more co-opting them in as like an entity of the government where you can give them a specific go- scope and specific task and purpose and operations to execute as part of the unified um emergency response command, government command, military command, whatever it is. And I, you know we saw that unfold in the Middle East and Iraq and then in, in Southeast Asia and Afghanistan. And I think it's only going to continue because private security traditional companies like the big guys here in the US as well as your more tactical private military entities, there is some benefit there in the flexibility that they can pivot and shift assets from one place to another that a local Mm -hmm. police department doesn't have. You know, I think about the city of Minneapolis. I think I had more heads on the ground in Minneapolis than the city of Minneapolis did. I think I had about, you know, probably in the city, 750 people myself, and I'm a private guy working for a private company and we're protecting clients and and their assets, right? So I think that that's something we need to really think about, you know, when we talk about polycrisis and disasters, and even the disasters, Carlos, like you were saying, it's like, well, why don't we worry about floods? Well, it's it's less, it's less sexy than CQB. But we still have to do it. Oh god, yeah. I <laughs> I need I need, I need yeah. a guy who maybe they're not tactical, but they know how to get water in when their boys are are dying of thirst in into the that's city. Right. So there's that type of stuff that's it. not tactical, but you gotta do it.
0: I love tactical, bro. I love t- all those guys for being there the greatest ever. Um but here's here's a couple of things that you guys met because you're dealing with you know can i bring somebody from another state that's not licensed in my state mm-hmm. and those other things well how can we use the federal laws that are out there today that are directly connected to emergency management to make sure that we can use those also in the private look everybody knows that, that most of the infrastructure in the year 85 plus we know this in the emergency management comes from private companies right one of the reasons probably we couldn't tap into these private companies because new orleans didn't have that communication in between government and private i'm sure if they had that con- connection that we do today i know that my team uh, where i work that's one of the biggest things that i tell them make sure you're always communicating with your local law enforcement emergency management they were exchanging ideas we're talking every single day because ultimately i know from my emergency management right the degree is that we probably hold way more than they do when it comes to these things that relationship wasn't happening but how can we get, which is a great one that, that you brought up, Tyler? That's why you're the smartest guy in the room. Is how do we get people automatically when these situations either the you know EMAC, right? The emergency management assistant Comp, assistance compact that we put together back in the 1970s, where states can assist from each other. Oh, they gotta call they don't have to go to the feds, by the way. You don't have to go to the feds. These are all state licensed stuff, right? State to state talking. Mm-hmm. How can we get them to jump in and say, all right we're cool. Bring bring your people, bring your security folks, bring everybody that that we need to make sure this thing happened. How do we get the state to open up and say, okay, you know, these private companies are well-trained security officers got that little 40 hours, their state, you know, recommend the thing. And we're going to trust them in emergencies. I'm not saying bring them across. Let's not do a a big party, you know, a free for all, but honestly, an EMAC should say, okay, if we're going to work together as States through this compact, Let's allow every state license in emergency. Yeah. Be state. Uh, 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 give, give me a word there, Scott. Uh, recipro- Reciprocity. Reciprocity. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna. will leave it at that. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I, I think this is going to be um, going back to polycrisis and where we're seeing kind of the future with where we have less professionals and on the protective services side. Uh, we're going to need something like that. We're going to need to have something that we can um, share cross-border. The, but the problem, or I think the ch- one of the challenges is if this is truly a polycrisis, you know, what happens when we have a major cyber attack on our communications infrastructure mere um, hours before a hurricane is coming ashore? And it's a Cat 5 hurricane and it's getting ready to hit. Mm-hmm. And then all comms um, go out, both internet and and everything else so we're um we're, we're on that that cusp right now of where um anybody know what happens when when you can't communicate right and we all know that those of us in emergency management know that you better have a runner right mm-hmm. And we go, we're, now we're going back to like world war one um mm-hmm. and you're, you're running down the trenches trying to deliver messages and how confusing that's going to be and who Uh, in our in this new world will be disciplined enough to operate independently until they get different orders or until they get different information i i don't i don't know that we won't have people uh in, in tough situations having to make tough calls and just abandoning their responsibility that's that's the fear that I have is that mm-hmm. um, we kind of do have as we're losing, and you guys have heard me say this as we're losing the baby boomer generation um, who had that sense of honor, who had that sense of responsibility, not to say that the other generations don't, I'm not belittling them, but we just don't have that same level of discipline. Many baby boomers um, served in the, mil- in, in the military and public safety um, before they going on to their co- other corporate security c- careers. We, we can't necessarily say that that's true with Gen X and millennials so that just painting the picture how it is All right yeah I what I, one thing and just to go back
0: and, and tell it because we got about five minutes left I think it, here are some things that I like to see that brings it back to our industry the security industry okay so September 11th happens a lot of different things go on right and then you have the, the the national framework that was put together along with NIMS, right? The National Incident Management System gets put in. ICS then is how we operate down on the ground. That was put into place. There was a thing about the ICS system that I love till today, which the I finally when they get to the ICS, the operational system, Tyler, is where they finally said, "Okay, we all government folks here, we're going to speak the same language, but now we're going to involve this." 85% of all the critical infrastructure that's run by private companies, we're going to involve y'all in that incident command system. Okay. They finally said, they finally let us in. The government let us in. And being coming from the private side, I'm like, all right, man, I can work with you on this. We, you know, we're going to all talk the same language. I'm really excited about because, you know, back then I was Mickey Mouse, Tyler. I was Mickey Mouse and we had our own Mickey Mouse language, you know, like our entire uh, alphabet uh, was, you know, it was like M was Mickey. You know, it was uh, that's that's how it worked out for us. So, here's the thing that I like to know: How can we make all of these wonderful federal, um, I guess, mandates that put in put put into work? And I, God, I can't name them all right now. But anything that has to do uh, with emergency management, and all the way up to you know, if, if somebody's coming after our government, pasa comitatus, which I don't want to even go into that. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we're getting to Trump and trying to pull that out in emergency management, and I'm sitting around going, "Trump, you can't use that for what you're trying to do. That's a whole other thing." But we'll talk. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. But anyways, how can we do this, Tyler? How can we allow the government give them give them a, a peace of mind that if the private industry comes into their place, we won't take over? It's like allow us. Just give us the rules that says emergency management private can come in and work interstately is that a word interstate yeah how do we do it how do we make that happen
2: i think at its most fundamental level the biggest thing is for any organization private public whatever when we're dealing with higher probability threats or disasters like katrina it's not we hoped it wouldn't happen but it's not like we didn't know about the magnitude that was possible with it so it's starting to have those discussions before it happens have those discussions where you can sit down with an unoccupied brain pan and, and you can work through some of those things and start figuring out you know what are areas of responsibility for the city for these things so when it comes time you can deploy people in so even in a in a case where you lose comms completely, whether it's overloaded telecom, whether it's an EMP, whether it's a cyber attack before a hurricane, whatever. You can still operate then line of sight with small units, you know, groups of a hundred, you know, under under police command or military command. So they have reasonable autonomy to where they have left and right guardrails to where they can do the things that they need to do. Sans a unified command and the And the communications component that comes along with that because the last thing you want to do is be reaching out to a potential partner when the stuff has already hit the fan saying well i need to get these people in or whatever so like i'll even liken it back to my experience in minneapolis you know i've got customers going nuts because why are you getting me people more national company and then even internally in in the company I was working for, G4S at the time, I've got folks down in Florida call me, my customer's very upset, Tyler, why aren't you taking care of this? It's like, they're not licensed. Well, I've dealt with hurricanes and we did that, but it's like, but this government is not allowing that. So we have to work within the confines of what we have. So it was really more of a situation of not putting people on buses or planes at any cost. But I think you have those conversations before high probability disasters, or at least at a minimum, When things go poorly, or even if they go reasonably well, you do those after action reviews afterwards. So it's like, you know, what were the pluses? What were the, you know, what were the sustains? What were the improves? And then we start to put control measures in there around that. It's like, what things do we use to control that in the future? It's like, you know, maybe if it's like with the Minnesota government or, you know, the BCA that does licensing, it's like, well, maybe we don't want to let everyone in because we have certain standards, but. (laughs) Maybe we line up line it up with Wisconsin and Illinois and North Dakota at a minimum, just to get us a bit of a response and then have the ability to do like expedited licensing coming in. So really some of this discussions, even about like our corporate security colleagues who sit on the customer side of the equation from service providers. Start thinking about that in more regulated states. It's not just as easy as give me the price and let me get people in because you're talking about providers with multimillion dollar operations and they're not going to get jammed up and lose a $50 million operation because they had unlicensed guards. And even if they can make a bunch of money off it, because then you're basically banned from operating in the state. So those are some of the things. So really those early conversations before stuff happens and taking those lessons learned. So if you have a, like a new Orleans type event, those disaster prone areas, you're talking about that before. So you have all of your, your reciprocity considerations lined up before, or, or if it's, you know, more like, you know, socioeconomic type of events that happen. It's like Minneapolis can happen anywhere in the world. And it really did in a lot of places. So it's like every emergency manager should be thinking about that and thinking about, well, have we really talked about reciprocity? Because you know what, a a CSO from a fortune 500 calling up a a local licensing body, they've got more juice than they think to start thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. And there's those operate, there's those opportunities to coordinate and collaborate ahead of time so that Tyler's not calling up BCA saying you're screwing me over here and everyone's mad and I can't help them and I'm supposed to be helping people right well I'll tell you I'll tell you exactly
0: what you're saying is one of the problems that I have with the uh, you know the statement of work or what a contract whatever people want to call these days uh which is statement of service whatever they want to call which is like within my statement of service I said within if something happens within 48 hours I, I I'm going to need 22 officers it's in the statement of service and you sign as a provider, of uh, security company, saying that you're going to get those 22. But let's say the crisis occurred in my area, in my town, in my state. There's no way in the world within 48 hours you're going to get me 22 people.
2: Not when it I happens. To, not when it happens to everyone. When it just happens oh. to Carlos, the corporate security director, I got you covered all day long. But now oh, that's I have, it. I have 40 Carloses in my city now, and I've got exactly. a problem but that's it right and that's exactly what i meant how can we work
0: to change the industry to make sure that the security officer from across the line uh missouri kansas is a perfect thing because kansas city of kansas on both sides kansas city is on both sides of missouri and kansas right how can i get just like, let's get some move from missouri let's get them over to kansas to go fulfill my 22 hours that's how we need to change the industry everybody and i think that we can do it when it comes to emergency management. Think for Katrina, in this conversation, we got to the bottom of this. The three of us are gonna change the world on how we are gonna make things like NIMS uh, become a private slash government thing where we can use any of those things, use the national contingency plan, throw that in there as how we were gonna move forward uh, you know, in, in securing our areas. I don't know, gents. I'm just throwing all these things in there. We could probably talk about this for the like 24 hours straight, or years. Um, <laughs> I know, but I gotta. We gotta slowly cut this out, but Scott. What, what do you think, man? Can you? Why don't you close this thing out, buddy? The,
1: the only thing. The only thing I'll add is you, you guys are 100 percent right. Um, it is imperative that all corporate security folks are taught and require their vendors to have ICS training. Um, we, I recommend ICS 100, 200, 700, 800, since you know how to communicate with your first, your, I won't even call them the first responders because the security team on the ground is going to be that first responder nine times Mm -hmm. out of 10. But those your public safety partners, uh, you got to speak their language. And if you don't take time to have them come and tour your campus, tour your facility, um, you're going to be in the wrong, and you're going to uh, be behind the power curve when you most need them. So with that, I will say I'm Scott Walker.
0: Hey, I'm Carlos Francisco. This, <laughs> this is...
1: <laughs> is Corporate Security
0: University. By the way, hanging out yeah. with Tyler Schmoker. Can yeah. I forget that? So corporate security university.
1: (laughs) Security excellence through education. And
0: that's how we do it out here at Tyler. We're pretty open. And uh, our point is just to have some great conversations and hopefully try to change the industry and focus on some things. I'm glad we got to the end of it where we're going to get the government to work with us in the industry to allow us to be there when emergencies happen as well. And uh, because ultimately, I think we all get in to this kind of industry because – we want to be helpful. We care about each other. We care about other people outside of us. We're willing to do things for others that they're willing to do for us, and that is the reason why we either get into military, law enforcement, or the security industry that we're in. And I think uh, we'll do this uh, one conversation at a time, and why not today with big-time uh, Tyler Schmoker uh, and Scott Walker. So, hey, thank you, Scotty. Another one, buddy. Tyler, you're the greatest. Another one, Scotty. Good job. We, uh, we did it. So Corporate Security University, once again. Now, we were supposed to end it with, when we ended. but I thought you we, wanted me uh, to end
1: it that way. We'll do whatever you want. Well, uh, I'm Carlos Francisco. I'm Scott Walker. This is Corporate Security University. Security excellence through education this time. We'll catch you all later <laughs> this time. Take <laughs> care, everybody. Good to see you. Bye-bye.
0: Security Excellence Through Education, Corporate Security University.